welcome to Beckett Talks, the new podcast from Leeds Beckett University. In these podcasts, we'll be showcasing our diverse community of students and academics, touching on the important themes that surround universities today. And it's time for Beckett Talks Research. I'm Dee Grismond, and each week I will be showcasing the interesting and innovative research community here at Leeds Beckett as part of this podcast series. In this week's episode, we look back at an interview recorded before the COVID-19 pandemic with Professor Jim McKenna from the Carnegie School of Sports here at Leeds Beckett University. Professor McKenna is head of the Active Lifestyles Research Centre, which focuses on the outcomes of physical activity and how to optimise its promotion. And he is also an expert in behaviour change. Welcome to the podcast, Professor Jim McKenna. So, Professor Jim McKenna, let's start with an easy question. Tell me a little bit about your background and how you got into your particular field of research. Okay, my background is I was a PE teacher uh, and an active coach and a as, as I was working through that experience as a professional, um, I found it very, very difficult to understand why some people weren't responding. And, and I was thinking that behaviour change seems to be at the heart of what's going on. Some, some people were liking it, some people weren't. Some were improving, some weren't improving. So it was clearly something that wasn't universal enough. So that made me interested in the idea, one, how to operationalise behaviour change for recipients of a programme, but, but also to understand what it is about those people uh, that we can design programmes much better. So that's basically what I do now. I, I design programmes which help people to either deliver so that you get better outcomes or that the participants are better served by the programmes. So can you explain to me a little bit more about what the programmes are? So the sorts of programmes that we'd be involved with would be anything from uh, helping teachers to improve the delivery of their classes so that the, the pupils do better in those classes uh, as assessed against exam results. Uh, another kind of uh, a, a much higher scale of operation would be how to design interventions for whole communities so that the inactive constituencies in those communities can be encouraged to become more physically active. Tell me a little bit more about your passion for your research subject. My interest is, is really all about um, how can we design according to how humans are. Uh, so I'm very interested in how do the, the ultimate arbiter of how we are is our brains. So we're now in a position where we're understanding quite a lot more about how brains work and how that is evident in terms of daily behaviour. So I'm trying to take back to what I would call first principles of how humans operate uh, and then design programmes that operationalise those ways in which we are going to operate no matter what. So we have to make those so that the programmes operationalise so that people get the outcomes they're interested in. Often that means we're interested in physical activity, but it doesn't invariably mean physical activity. It's much more about behaviour change. So you use the word operationalise quite a lot there little bit of a tongue twister, but can you tell me exactly what that means? Well, operationalised means when we know what the science says about how humans, say, respond to a given stimulus. So what can we do as, as people who are trying to create programmes? How can we make that into something real and tangible? So an example would be um, uh, an app designer, if they were trying to think that humans work really well with dopamine. Dopamine is a brain chemical which is released when you get a reward and it helps you to remember where to get that reward. So we, we would say, right, okay, what produces dopamine in this experience? How can we make sure that element in the app design keeps recurring so that people keep getting a dopamine charge? When they get a dopamine charge, they want more, which means you can't turn your, your app off. That's exactly the nature of the design that we think about for an app. We're trying to think of that kind of concept for a physical activity program. You come this week, 
you get some dopamine, you want to come back next week, you get some more. In a class, at 10 minutes when your concentration goes, how do you get some dopamine? So your concentration stays for 15 minutes and stays for 20 minutes. So it's the same basic concept. But what we're interested in is we're trying to make the outcome inevitable. So when we know how humans function, uh, dopamine is kind of a universal process. It doesn't matter what culture you come from. That's how we are as humans. So if we know the thing we want and we can connect it to dopamine and make sure that you experience lots of dopamine in the process of pursuing that outcome, it will happen. It's a very, very powerful addiction mechanism. That was really interesting, Jim. Thanks so much. And you mentioned a bit about human-centric design. Could you expand on that a little bit more for me? Well, if you think about what we're driven towards as human beings, we have three fundamental kind of needs. The overarching thing is things have to make sense to us. If they don't, so a sense of purpose and a sense of meaning. Inside that, we have three kind of four really powerful drivers. A need to make our own decisions, which we call autonomy. Our need to work with other people, which is called relatedness, and our sense of competence. So anything that, uh, so, and these emerge at different stages in our, in our lives. So autonomy emerges in kind of middle to late adolescence. Relatedness is very much a child thing, but stays with us because our brains are programming as we develop. And then it stays with us. So our need to be social is lifelong. And then the competence thing is really very important because anything that threatens our competence and makes us feel like, I'm not going to, I anticipate not being very good at this. Our typical response to that is to run away from it. We're not drawn towards it. Now, we know we can help people who are naturally want to run away. The experience that we create leading into those things will make them want to stay. And this is a challenge for any educational institute, for any behavior change program, any organization where you're trying to get people to do, which otherwise they might go, nah, maybe not. We're trying to get it so that the dopamine comes in really regularly and often. They feel autonomous, they feel competent, and they feel like they're connected to the people they're working with. That gives you a really strong chance of a powerful program, uh, an operation that will work. So this type of design is for encouraging people who may not see themselves as naturally sporty to get more involved. Well, well if you take physical activity is a really good example and the idea that people don't think they're sporty. Well, the first thing is we wouldn't start with what we want, which might people interested in sport. Well, they're not. So start with what they are interested in. And that's about personal growth, something that's about so it's meaningful to them. And the second you start thinking about what's meaningful to them, they can then start thinking, OK, how does that thing that you're talking about help me to achieve what I want? Now my reward system starts to kick in and I can start anticipating dopamine. Ah, right, now I'm starting to come on to the same page as everybody else. If I start thinking about sport and I know I don't like sport, then all that happens is my runaway chemicals kick off. Now there's no dopamine there. All I do is practice rehearsing resistance to that message. So I use this example a lot in, uh, in schools. Uh, for children who don't like structured PE, how is more structured PE the answer to their physical inactivity? They've learned how to defend themselves against that and they're not going to play that game. You've got to create it so it's much more about how they relate, how competent they feel uh, and how much autonomy they feel in that kind of process. Once you get those things right, you're in a much better way of going.
So what would be the answer for those kids that don't like structured PE? You'd need to be thinking about what does make them feel autonomous so they get some choices about the types of activities that are going on. Uh, the competence is often not to do with the physical, it's to do with the social experience and being with their friends. So the more that's created, so much more about what we would call affect, the, the emotional experience of what's on offer. Uh, and that's very much in terms of children, how do my friends react to me rather than how much do I know enough about myself to be able to understand this? So for children, they, they, it's reflected back to them. For us as individuals, as adults, we know what, what that feels like and it's got to be delivered to us so it really matters to us individually. So because we develop across time, we have different needs. So what we do with a, an eight-year-old is different to a 15-year-old, is different to a 25-year-old, is different to a 50-year-old because our brains are endlessly evolving according to our experience. In one sentence, what is the important question you want your research to address? Uh, I think the important question that I think we, we need to address is how can we make what we do more personally relevant and meaningful to more people? That's great because that's personalising the issue, isn't it? Because I've, I've always thought this at school, it's great if you're good at exams because that's the way we measure people. But what if you're not good at exams? What if that's not your thing? When the competence is cross a line or don't, if you anticipate you're not going to cross that line, what do you do? You become the biggest pain in the arse in the world because you've got to make sure it's not your fault. That's what happens in schools. Those kids are psychologically alert. They're not passive. That's, that's what they have to be. From nine and ten, they're becoming independent people. And that means they are demonstrating the early forms of brain structure that are brilliant with us. You know, we're successful people, but they're not yet successful people. So they're very um, infantile in the way they deploy those cognitive processes. The good educational system helps them strengthen those processes, helps them understand how to deal with setbacks and to realise setback isn't bad news. Setback has to be constructed at the level at which you can fix it on your own. All the resources that are available around you can help you to fix it. And the resources that kids need around them are other people. A computer doesn't do it because it's not personal enough. So then how do you feel about social media with kids then? It's a two-way street. There's this fabulous good in social media. So you can learn immense amounts of things from social media. So access to information is fabulous. But in an information-rich world, which is what we're in, what becomes in short supply is attention. So commanding attention and holding it onto things becomes the elusive quality. And that's what we're seeing now where uh, we see children who can't hold attention in class and what we think has happened is when we were younger or, or as, a, as, a, as a species, say, take us back to 1800, that, that's a really nice time. If you think, how many people would you think you'd know as a child? You, you would know somewhere in the order of about 100, 150 people and we think that's the number of adults that you need in your life to grow up. Now what happens is those adults aren't available so children go on social media and get pretend people. That they're, they're, you know, that, that idea that someone on the screen, so therefore they're a person. But there's no real relationship with those people. Plus, they are often people of their own age. And that's a disaster. It's, it doesn't matter that they, they integrate with one another. That's fine. But that doesn't teach you how to think in a better way or a wiser way, which is why you always ask an older person for advice. Well, they're not asking older people. They're asking their peers who don't know. 
You can feel that kind of, there's the downward spiral. When they're getting good advice and there's adults around them and they're using social media, yay, those kids are doing brilliantly. And this will be the greatest generation we've ever had. There's no question about that. I've no doubt about that. We will never see their like, except for the next generation, which will do even better. But each generation is gonna be better than the last one, but it will come with problems. And it was ever thus that we were concerned about our children. It was ever thus. Go back to any newspaper and the concern will be we're worried about the future of our children. <laughs> They're just growing up differently. And that sounds really reassuring. I think a lot of parents out there will feel the same way. I mean, we look at it differently, but they are growing up in a completely different world to us, to the way we grew up. The Carnegie School of Sport at Leeds Beckett University is one of the largest providers of sport in UK higher education. Recently investing £45 million in a new home for sport, the new building provides world-class sporting facilities and also acts as a hub for elite athletes, sports and industry partners. With courses in sport, exercise and health sciences, physical education, sports management and sports coaching, the school takes an interdisciplinary approach to teaching and research, enabling the students to graduate with the skills needed to succeed in an evolving sport and physical activity industry. So, if any of these subjects interest you, go to leedsbeckett.ac.uk forward slash CSOS for more information. Thank you, and here we are back in the studio with Professor Jim McKenna. I, I use this example all the time. I, I play my niece, she's not my niece, she's my girlfriend's niece. Uh, we play Trivial Pursuits, okay? Trivial Pursuits is a recall game. They come up through education that's not about recall. I came up through education, I had to know it. My generation is now in the double bind. We are, we've got great memories. Our generation got great memories, right? But we've had to learn to become um, curators of information, which your generation, you're curators of information. You know where to go to find things, but you don't know if you know anything, except you know where to go. I have the bind of knowing it and also wanted to go and check. <laughs> the generations in between us is even worse situation. <laughs> and that's because of what's around us. And that entrains our brain function because that's how we're having to function in day-to-day -day business. So in my generation, we've got great recall. We, we, we're good at practicing recall. And it's no accident that professors are going out of style that are like me, who know a lot. That's not about, that's not what's necessary now. Now it's about curating ideas and bringing things together. That, that's, that's how it's changing. Thanks. That's a really valuable insight, Jim. And I'd love to talk a bit more about that. But let's let's get back to your research. Can you tell me the value of your research and explain it how you'd explain it to the layperson, the man on the street, the woman on the street? I think the value uh, of the work to a layperson is we try to explain to people why it's like it is. So when people have challenges with whatever they're trying to do and they can't do it, it can, they can get beaten up by, oh, I'm so terrible, I'm this, I'm that. No, no, just understand how you are and then start saying, right, well, the basic principles of how you can do better, given how you are, are these. And people start to go, okay, I start and see this. So what we show them is how to build um, on personal motivation that's the last place we go. We start with build a system around you which makes it so you can't choose the bad behavior. So once you, once you create an environment which makes it hard to do the wrong thing, 
you start because we're motivated to do the easy thing, we're motivated to save energy, you do the easy choice. So an example in this room is why are some people sitting down? And the answer is because there are chairs. So if you don't want people to sit down, what do you do? You take the chairs out of the room or you take the people to a room where there are no chairs. Right, so now there's no choice. Now we start and we're trying to build environments which I would describe as a universal bulldozer. So the bulldozer, if I take physical activity as an example, we want everybody to be physically active. The bulldozer is coming towards you. <laughs> Here it comes. Yeah, so all the chairs are out of every room. Everyone's got sufficient equipment, etc., etc. It's coming towards you. How are you going to try and get out of it? Whatever you're going to try and do, we have to try and design a system to make sure the bulldozer blade captures you and it sweeps you up, not in a mean way, but in a good way. We try to show people how to build that for themselves. And once people realize the agency and the competence that they generate for themselves where they live, and that's really important that they can do it where they live, it really starts to fly. And the benefit of that is they start showing it to other people. Now we're really starting to motor because we're making a difference in the communities which are very unfortunately referred to as hard to reach. What they actually are is unreached. But we make a difference in those communities in terms of how to function really, really well those communities now have a possibility of a better future. So I guess what you do is you start with the person? The person in context. So the, the, what we try to do is we try and create space or create effective spaces around people so that they coerce you into a behaviour style. We then try and create social systems which encourage, talk about the positive behaviour rather than the, the other behaviour. That builds personal competence and that drives motivation. Motivation is our last port of call. We do not start with motivation because it's too, too fragile. An environment will overwhelm you no matter how motivated you are. That makes sense? I think so. So you have to find out what works for that person. In that space. So the, 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 the bulldozer that you all designed to become more physically active according to where you live will be different to the bulldozer that I designed for where I live. But it will still work. It will break down for different reasons, probably because your social structure or social style is different to mine, okay? And then what you're good at is different to what I'm good at. And then all of that comes out as broken motivation. You know, that, isn't, that isn't the problem, that's the symptom. The causes are elsewhere. And too much of what's gone on is about motivation. Pull yourself together as the starting point. That's not the starting point that works. That's just blaming the victims. That's where we've been, 150 years of public health policy about blaming the feckless and the this and the that and the other thing. Those people have got great agency. They just have been trying to change the wrong things. Get motivated to do your immunizations. Why? Why do I need to? As opposed to, let's bring the immunizations to the end of your street. Now it becomes a whole lot easier because the reason they don't have immunizations is they can't get to the doctor's surgery on time. Move the surgery to you, it becomes super easy. And I think that's really interesting because the message that you're always getting is that you have to motivate yourself. And that is really difficult. So... What do you teach people instead? What, what do they do instead? We try and teach people to create an environment which coerces you into the good thing you want to do anyway. So we, we take choices out. An, an example would be you, you try all the time to reduce the number of choices that people make. 
Okay, and, and that would be negative. So an example would be if you wanted to go walking in the morning, uh, one of the choices you do is you'd put your training shoes, so they're almost the first thing that your feet touch when you get out of bed. So the choice of putting training shoes isn't there. That's just happened. Okay, now there may be other choices in the meantime before you get out the door to go for a walk, but you, you see where we're going with that? Try and take the, the choices that are going the wrong direction. You design them out of the key pathway. The pathway is getting out the door by quarter past seven, should we say that, if you're going for a walk in the morning. Right, what's in the, in the middle? Anything that we could stop, we tried to design it to make sure it didn't do its worst, you know, do the harm it could do. And that makes you dominant in your environment. And that's what matters. Okay, that's, that's really interesting, Jim. Thanks so much. And where do you see your research going in the future? I think the, the way we're looking at these, uh, these ideas developing, uh, one, there are three directions, I think. One is the nature of the innovations that are going to emerge from better understanding of how humans function. We're still very early in terms of how brains work. There's going to be discoveries all the time uh, that will, will help us to do better. So one is what we innovate. Second thing is how do we implement that? Most of our interventions, while they could have great ideas, uh, fail because of implementation problems. So uh, I use the phrase a lot, when the adults change, everybody changes. Uh, the adults could be the responsible people in a system. Uh, so whenever we have a problem in a system where its priorities are failing, there's a problem in the system. It is not with the recipients of the system. So we use our higher education example. We've got student dropout. The, the, the response from lots of people inside the system is it's the students. In the way I'm thinking about it, it's a failure of design in the system to respond to the way those students are. That will help you solve it. So that's an implementation issue. Then once we discover how to do it well, how to implement it well, it's then how can we get more places to do that? And that's about spread. So there's three, innovation, implementation and spread. Those are the areas where we think there'll be fabulous uh, developments in the next 20 years. And what do you think will be the big issues in your field in the future? The big issues in the field right now are really at the, the basic end of, of the science in one, in one moment. So do we really understand what that, those brain pictures are telling us? Do we really understand that? I, I think broadly we don't. We're getting some good ideas, but not yet. So the computational work around artificial um, uh, AI is, is really going to help us understand how brains work. From there, the other two domains are all going to mushroom in terms of improvement. So we're going to see way better implementation in every public service, because I'm really mostly interested in public service, way better implementation and then way better spread. But each of those is going to require a stage prior to it. So the brain development is going to require better technology. Once that's developed, then we need better implementation. And once a better implementation is established, then we can get better spread. Each requires development on the previous stage. So I guess to make this work, the communities that people live in is really important. Completely. Uh, what, what we know is that behaviour is a function of the person in their, in their environment. So context, whatever we mean by that. But it, so if you think that the formula for effective behaviour change is got to be personally relevant and it's got to be socially reinforced. Okay, those are, if, it, if it fails on either of those, it's going to fail horribly. Uh, but it should really start with social reinforcement. And so that, the social reinforcement is what surrounds us. And it does, just doesn't mean social in terms of interpersonal. It means what rules do you operate with? You know, on what basis do you get paid? You know, and what do you have to do for that? And what are the rules that affect you there? So 
if the rules are you've got to be in your office nine till five, then walking at lunchtime becomes a bit of a contention because the boss says, and the boss is the local manager, so you can feel that there's social that plays out there. So you've got to get the social right and you've got to get the personally relevant. If it doesn't mean anything to you, it's going to fail. We know that, so we've got to find out what people value. And that's about their version of a good life. So tell me, what would be the one thing you would like to change in your field? The, the biggest thing, I, I think, for change in the field, as, as I'm thinking of it right now, is the, the challenge has always been focused on the recipients of the programmes, why they've not responded. And for the most part, I think that's the wrong focus. It's evident that things are wrong, but actually the energy that needs to go in is in the implementation and the people delivering the implementation. And that's, for want of a better term, the adults. They don't have to be adult, but they just have to be the people responsible for delivering it. They have to deliver it in a responsible way so that it optimises the likelihood of the outcomes you're after. And what would you like to see as learning more about the brain in the future? I, I think we, we still have to, to work really hard to understand uh, when people's best aspirations for themselves fall down. Because I, I think at, at a higher level, I'm, I'm very, very committed to the idea is that we're, we're built to be great, whatever we mean by great as individuals, but we are built for that and we can achieve the things we want. We need to create environments which allow that to happen. And we need to understand where it currently falls down for people who want to do well. What is it that's falling down and how can we design better for that? That's a really interesting concept that you feel that we all want to be great. Yeah. Um, where does that... Yeah, well, the, the, the idea is that we, we all have things we want, whatever great means, and that might be very modest for, for one person. It might be, I, I want to be the king of the world, which would be a terrible aspiration, but, but it's a greatness aspiration. But great just might mean, I, I want to help puppies. I, I don't mind. It's whatever you want for yourself. It, that's a good life for you. That's what I mean by that. So we can operationalise to make sure that people get what they want. Now, when we're doing what they want, the problem of motivation disappears. Now it's only a matter of design. And if we get the design right, motivation is enhanced. So we take that motivation problem out of the scenario, if you take it. Too much has been built around and solely focused on that idea of motivation. We must move away from that. That's all been amazingly interesting. Professor John McKenna, thank you so much. And finally, can you tell me a little bit about Battleback? Okay, so, so Battleback is, is one of our early uh, attempts to design a program based on um, a, a group, a, a defined group of people who, uh, in, in the popular imagination, they're, they're military people, uh, and at the time it was Afghanistan, etc. So the, the popular image was of people coming back blown up with missing body parts, etc. So, and, and that's true that there, there was all that. But the, the, the program was designed as a residential program uh, with the idea of reorientating pretty damaged people from the Afghanistan war, but also helping people who are in the military. Now the military has about 90,000 employees, so it's a massive employer. So all the back pain that we experience in the university, all the sickness that we experience, it has all that as well. So we, we design a program to help people to rehabilitate, and I don't mean in terms of from the wounds, but just to reintegrate and become people with that sense of meaning and purpose. So we designed a week-long program to help those guys to, to secure those benefits over the course of a week. 
that program was designed against the human-centered ideas that we talked about, autonomy, competence, relatedness, sense of purpose, all that. Uh, after a week, uh, that we've, we've had about uh, three, 4,000 people go through that now. Uh, the success of that has been such that it's now required for anyone who is deemed wounded, injured, or sick in the military to attend. It's that powerful, which is very heartening. Uh, and g given who it was designed for, it was designed for people, uh, the, the lowest common denominator was the way it was described to us, was people with low reading skills, and it was the lowest level of qualified person in the military. It had to satisfy their needs. And that, but it still deals with officers as well, because the design is basic, human, universal need. When you get there, you can do anything. It, it, if you design for the captain and the colonel, those, they don't demonstrate the universal need. They demonstrate somewhere up the pyramid, if you want, and it leaves all these other folk behind. And what it leaves behind is people with really challenging environments. If you're the captain or the colonel, you probably didn't come from the back streets of Halifax. You probably didn't. Well, that might be a tough place to come from. And you've got to deal with it there. Thank you, Professor Jim McKenna. That was really interesting. The Beckett Talk podcasts are released every Tuesday. So don't forget to check our social media channels on Instagram, Twitter or Facebook to find out more details on our next episode. See you next week. Today, Leeds Beckett Research Community is delivering innovative, multidisciplinary research, helping to address some of the most pressing challenges we face today. Across a range of disciplines, our researchers are striving to improve quality of life, equality and the environment around us. We are dedicated to making a difference and our research pages showcase the real-world impact taking place at the university. You can find out more at leedsbeckett.ac.uk forward slash transform and if you've enjoyed hearing about the research at Leeds Beckett University subscribe to our channel and listen out for more of our Beckett Talks research podcasts 